Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at the New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, in his first meeting with Donald Trump after the election, Barack Obama said not to hire him. In the first days of the Trump administration, the attorney general said he was susceptible to blackmail. Two new accounts of when Donald Trump was warned about Michael Flynn and didn't act. And dozens of girls in Nigeria have been released after three years in captivity. What is life like under Boko Haram? It's Tuesday, May 9th. New York Times, it's Matt Apuzo. Matt, this is Michael Barbaro. Hey, how are you? Matt Apuzo spent Monday watching a Senate hearing where Sally Yates, the former acting attorney general, was testifying about Russia's interference in the presidential election. The focus. When did the White House know, and exactly who knew, about the conversations that Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor, had with the Russian ambassador to the U.S.? We know that on January 26, Sally Yates calls... Don McGahn, the White House counsel, and says, I had a very sensitive matter that I needed to discuss with him, that I couldn't talk about it on the phone, and that I needed to come see him. So uh, she and a a career prosecutor from the National Security Division hurried to the White House. We began our meeting telling him that there had been press accounts um, of statements from the vice president and others. About Michael Flynn's conversations uh, with Russia. That we knew not to be the truth. And the White House counsel responds. Why does it matter to DOJ if one White House official lies to another White House official? It's kind of a staggering question. Yeah. And so what Sally Yates said was. The Russians also knew about what General Flynn had done. And the Russians also knew that General Flynn had misled the vice president and others. Because in the media accounts, it was clear from the vice president and others that They were repeating what General Flynn had told them and that this was a problem because not only did we believe that the Russians knew this, but that they likely had proof of this information. And that created a compromise situation, a situation where the national security advisor essentially could be blackmailed by the Russians. And what did Sally Yates expect the White House to do with this information once she went there and conveyed it to them? Well, she didn't say exactly what she expected them to do, but she made it clear she expected them to do something, that this was something that she thought they needed to act on. I remember that Mr. McGahn asked me whether or not General Flynn should be fired. 
And I told him that that really wasn't our call. That was up to them, but that we were giving them this information so that they could take action. What we don't know is how they acted on it. We know that uh, rather than moving quickly, uh, the White House waited 18 days and only fired Michael Flynn after the news got out that what he had said publicly wasn't true. But they knew that the day that Sally Yates went to the White House and said, hey, let me walk you through this. What you're hearing isn't the true story. Matt, outside of this hearing today, we learned that someone else had warned President Trump about Michael Flynn. What was that all about? Well, in order to understand this, it it sort of begins with a tweet, right? So Sally Yates is getting ready to testify, and uh, Donald Trump does his morning tweet routine and says, hey, somebody should ask why, if Michael Flynn was such a big concern, that the Obama administration gave him a security clearance. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, within an hour. NBC News has now learned from at least three former Obama administration officials. It's coming out uh, to the Times, pretty much all the media outlets. That President Obama at the time, in uh, it was on Thursday, November 10th, warned then-President-elect Donald Trump against hiring Mike Flynn. Chris? Donald Trump's not under any obligation to listen to, to take national security advice from Barack Obama. But it just gets into this back and forth. Matt, what happened in the last few days of Sally Yates' time as acting attorney general? Well, so there's this moment today where the senator said, Ms. Yates, do you know what the White House did with the information you gave them? And she said, no, because I was fired the next day. And she was fired in this, uh, you know, this really dramatic moment where she refused to defend the president's executive order banning uh, refugees and travel from mm-hmm. several Muslim countries. And she defended that decision here today and said, I don't believe that there are reasonable legal arguments that are grounded in truth that can be made in defense of his argument that the travel ban was not intended to have an impact, a religious impact, and to disfavor Muslims. She stood by it. Uh, she made a, uh, a pretty impassioned, if lawyerly, defense of the decision she made. And she said, uh, you, Senate, and the Senate Judiciary Committee put me in office with the expectation that I would stand up to the president if he asked me to do something unconstitutional. In fact, I remember my confirmation hearing um, in an exchange that I had with you. And, and others of your colleagues where you specifically asked me in, in that hearing that if the president asked me to do something that was unlawful or unconstitutional, and one of your colleagues said, or even just that would reflect poorly on the Department of Justice, would I say no? And I looked at this. I made a determination that I believed that it was unlawful. I also thought that it was inconsistent with the principles of the Department of Justice And I said no, and that's what I promised you I would do, and that's what I did. Now, they were asking if she would stand up to President Obama, and so that backfired a little bit for the Republicans on the uh, committee because they they wanted somebody who was going to be willing to stand up to President Obama. But she was saying the principle is the same. I was being asked to do something I thought was unconstitutional, and I, I stood up for that, and I said no. I did what you sent me to the Justice Department to do. Very quickly, is there any reason to think that Part of the reason why the Trump administration didn't listen to Sally Yates is because she was a holdover from the Obama administration. 
Sure. I, I mean, I could see a situation where they're they're skeptical mm-hmm. of a political holdover and, you know, don't want to take that at face value. I mean, they don't know uh, if, if Sally Yates is a partisan operative. I mean, she is a career prosecutor who's worked her way up bringing cases under both administrations uh, down in Atlanta, but they don't necessarily know what her motives are. Michael Flynn is out of a job. Sally Yates is out of her job. What does all this mean ultimately, what we learned in this testimony today from her about him? I think what we learned here is that we still don't know a lot about what happened inside the White House during those early days of the administration and why President Trump was so willing to stand by Michael Flynn uh, in the face of these serious concerns by the FBI and the Justice Department. Was it loyalty? Was it a sense of not wanting to give fuel to to a scandal, to create a scandal, not want to give fodder to critics who wanted to throw Russia at him. I mean, we don't know exactly why, but we know that he stood by him for, for 18 days. Do you expect there to be any repercussions from the testimony? I think there'll be more questions. I think, uh, you know, we're going to want to know and other reporters will want to know from the White House, what were you doing for 18 days? Why was it a problem when the public knew that he had lied, but it wasn't a problem uh, when you just privately knew that he had lied. Matt, thank you very much. I'll let you get back to writing. I know you're on deadline. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Bye. We'll be right back. When times became uncertain, Wampley pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Wampley has helped 1 million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Wampley helps small businesses thrive. Visit Wampley.com to learn more. Over the past eight years, Boko Haram has burned, killed, and kidnapped its way across parts of West Africa. If you have had one of your relatives killed by Boko Haram, would you raise your arm? Oh, so many of you murdering thousands and causing millions to flee for their lives. But it was a singular act in the town of Chibok in April 2014 that brought the world's attention to this war in Nigeria, the kidnapping of 300 schoolgirls by the Islamist militants. Crowds like these from New York to London rallied yesterday, demanding that the terrorist group bring back our girls, imploring the Nigerian government to take some sort of action. What are we demanding? Bring back our girls now and alive. We need to know where these girls are. We really need to. This weekend, dozens of them were released. I called my colleague Dion Cersei in Senegal. I want to go back to the original kidnapping three years ago. What happened back then? So... So these girls were at a boarding school, and they had been spending the night for exam week. Radical Islamists have committed another atrocity as many as 200 girls have been abducted from a boarding school by heavily armed members of Boko Haram. And Boko Haram stormed into the school. As the students slept. Grabbed the girls, torched the village, and took the girls. The girls are mainly Christian and were attending the Chibok school in northern Borno State. About 50 or so of them were able to escape. They abduct them to convert them to fundamentalist Islamic teachings. They loaded them into trucks. They loaded them into trucks and carted them away. This is just the latest series of attacks by Boko Haram targeting Nigerian schools. Some of them, they have walked into rooms and shot point blank in the head dozens of students. And there was a lot of violence. You know, they shot 
They shot people that day. They burned houses. And that's how it started. What do we know about what happened to the girls over these three years that they were held by Boko Haram? I've talked to many girls who've been held by Boko Haram, and many of them were raped, um, you know, forced to be married and have sex with fighters. Um, many yeah. of them have born children. Um, a lot of them, you know, were, were just made to cook and clean for Boko Haram. Um, some of them were, were forced to use weapons, and some of them were even trained to be suicide bombers. They were trained to be suicide bombers, young women? Yeah, that's happening a lot now. Um, right now, the bulk of Boko Haram's strategy is sending young girls into crowded markets, into camps for displaced people, and to blow themselves up. One woman told me there was a formal training, you know, a, almost like levels of education that she would go through about how to hold a bomb, how to hold her arm so that she didn't set off the bomb. Wow you know, where to go, what to do. I want to step back for just a minute. Dion, what exactly is Boko Haram? Boko Haram is a radical Islamic movement that started years ago when there was a fundamentalist movement kind of going on that swept a lot of the world, but also the northeast part of Nigeria. Mm -hmm. Nigeria is split into sort of Christian and Muslim. And this was going on in the Muslim areas. I mean, this was a time of huge inequality, where um, at the same time people were really, really poor. These government leaders were sending off their kids to go to school in London and coming back with new clothes and, you know, education mm. and, and, and stealing money from government coffers that could have been helping these people who had nothing to eat. So there was a huge, huge anti-government sentiment coupled with this anti-Western and Islamic movement. It sounds from what you're describing like there is a kind of popular mass appeal or potentially a popular mass appeal within Nigeria's poor communities for Boko Haram. Is that, is that accurate? You know, I think as Boko Haram has spread, that has lessened to some degree. But yes, I mean, there was an appeal. Obviously, you know, there were people who went off and joined. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, you're in a really, really poor area. I mean, these are some of the poorest people in the planet. If you're a woman growing up mm -hmm. in a small village in northeastern Nigeria, your lot in life is to get married, to have kids, and to work on a farm. And Boko Haram comes along and says, hey, you know, I'm going to pay you a higher dowry. I'm going to give you a life where maybe you have to do some laundry, but you don't have to go out and farm. And you can be with me. You know, it's an easier life in some ways. I know that's maybe a contrarian mm -hmm. point of view, but, you know, I really tried to understand the thinking of some of these women who have gone along with Boko Haram. You know, and, and just to be um, clear, you're talking about women who, mm -hmm. who were not kidnapped. Yeah, or even that's a gray area, you know, are they or aren't they? Maybe they went willingly mm. under threat, or maybe their fathers decided it was a good idea, or, you know, the Chiba girls are the symbol of, like, girls who were, you know, uh, taken. But that doesn't always happen like that. It. It's complicated. Some may go willingly, some may go somewhat unwillingly, and some go completely involuntarily, you're saying. For sure. And, and, you know, what is willing when you're, I mean, that young 16. and that poor. Right? Yeah. You're that young. You have nothing. These guys are armed. I mean, I don't even, why, why even talk about willing? Right. 
So let's go back to, to these girls and to their release. Why do you think that these girls were released now after three years? Well, people across Nigeria are very, very frustrated by what they see as a lack of any kind of commitment by their military or their government to do anything in this particular case to bring these girls home. Day after day, every day, the Bring Back Our Girls campaign meets in Abuja. Where are we from? Chibo. Where are we from? Nigeria. God bless you all and never grow weary. There are few options left for a government that appears to be powerless in the face of an increasingly brazen Boko Haram. This is clearly something that has captured the attention of the world. And what Nigerians are saying is, when is it going to capture the attention of their leaders? The girls were released under certain conditions mm -hmm. that the government had been negotiating for several months. In exchange for their release, Boko Haram got five or six, we're not sure how many, suspects, like commanders, apparently, who had been being held by the military. This really is a momentous moment. With three years having gone by, some had begun to doubt whether any more girls would be released. And allegations have surfaced that the Nigerians also paid for the girls, hmm. paid a ransom. That hasn't been proven to be true yet, but it might explain why these girls were kept so safe. I mean, Boko Haram knew what they had. They knew the world's focus was on it. President Buhari had said from the time he campaigned that he wanted to free them. Mm -hmm. They knew these girls were important. And, you know, they still have, I mean, there are some 111 or 103 or something like that who are still being held. It sounds like you've spoken to some of the women who have been released in the, in the past. And I wonder if, if any of their stories about trying to re-enter normal life has stuck with you. Well, I mean, there's so many stories that have really stuck with me, but but as far as the reentry goes, a lot of the women had told me that they pretend that their husbands have died. Hmm. And one woman had a baby with her. She told everybody else that, oh, you know, my, my husband was killed by Boko Haram. That's hmm. a tactic that they say. Um, so I'm a widow, you know, and... Therefore, everyone will sympathize with her because they'll think, oh, this poor woman left with a baby and Boko Haram killed her husband, when in fact, the father was a fighter. Mm -hmm. But she had her little brother with her. And the little brother was like, I don't know, 10 or 11 or 12 or something. And basically, every man who's, you know, between the age of like 10 or 40 or 30 is under suspicion because... If you are alive, that means you must have fought with Boko Haram because Boko Haram mm. usually kills kills you, kills a men if they won't come with them and fight. So this poor little boy was with her, and here she is with this woman with a fighter's baby, and her little brother gets just the slot beaten out of him mm. because he's alive, and wow. everybody thinks he must have fought with Boko Haram. And here she is. She has a baby of a fighter, and, you know, she got her brother beat up. And, and for her to admit that she had been raped by a fighter would what I'm guessing bring unbelievable shame right. shame on her. Oh, I don't I think it's more than shame. I mean, I think she's worried about her own life, mm. you know. You can imagine. I mean, if you I've talked to children who've watched their parents been beheaded in front of them. I mean, people who've lost everything, their whole livelihood and they're living in ramshackle awful camps now with no sewage, with disease, with allegations of rape in the camps by government workers who are supposed to be taking care of these people. I mean, this is an awful, awful life. You can understand the rage. 
Dion, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Here's what else you need to know today. Executive order, which suspended... President Trump's travel ban is back in court. The 1182F gives the president broad authority to suspend the entry of, it says, any class of aliens when he deems it in the national interest. A lawyer for the White House pleaded with a panel of 13 federal judges on Monday to reinstate Trump's order restricting travel from six predominantly Muslim countries. The order is a watered-down version of an earlier ban that was also blocked by the courts, based on comments that Trump had made while on the campaign trail, which judges found showed that the ban was religiously motivated and potentially unconstitutional. Has the president ever repudiated the campaign statements that he made on a Muslim ban? Judge King, he has. And again, as I say, some of the briefs walk through this. He said, look, over time, I've made clear... Well, he changed it from... Religion to nationality. He, he explained that he wasn't going to call it religion anymore. He was going to call it nationality, and Mayor Giuliani advised him to do it that way. He did do that. Territories. He's but he's territory. going to be territories. But he, he's never repudiated what he said about the Muslim ban. It's still on his website. The, the judges appear divided over whether to ignore Trump's past statements and motives in considering the validity of the ban. And days after House Republicans passed a plan to replace the Affordable Care Act, Senate Republicans have recruited 13 members to write their own version of the bill. All of the lawmakers are conservative, and all of them are male, drawing complaints from female senators. The Times reports that the Senate plan could take months to craft and is unlikely to draw the support of a single Democrat. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. you're still running your business on QuickBooks, more like quicksand. The bigger your company grows, the faster you sync with outdated software. NetSuite by Oracle is the scalable solution to run all key back office operations, no matter how big your company grows. 93% of surveyed organizations increase visibility and control since making the switch from QuickBooks to NetSuite. Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program. Head to netsuite.com daily. That's special financing at netsuite.com slash daily, netsuite.com slash daily.